Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Thanks, Eric. The harvest field is plentiful, so pray about that, will you? Uh, my friends, we are in Matthew chapter 11, so you can please turn there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, we'd like to um, have you. We'd like you to have one this morning, so that you can follow along and uh, look at the Scripture yourself with us. And then, if you don't own one, just keep it. All right, it's our gift to you. Um, but if you forgot one today, we would like to get you one, so the, the ushers can help you with that. But as I said, we are in Matthew chapter 11. Um, we are about halfway through this chapter, and our goal today will be to finish the chapter. And if you were with us last week, you recall that the chapter begins, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, he has been put in prison, and it's while he's been there, almost a year's worth of time, that John is kind of wrestling with some things, and some of his expectations for who Jesus was and what Jesus was going to do are not immediately being met, and it seems that discouragement is setting in, and so he sends some representatives to Jesus, and he says in verse 2, are you the one, or should we send, or verse 3, should we, should we look for another? Are you the Messiah that we're anticipating and Jesus' response to that, I, I so very much appreciate. He, he doesn't get angry, he doesn't get mad, doesn't, the nerve, you know, this kind of stuff. But he just points John back to the word of God. He said, you know what, John, I understand what you're going through. In my mind, this is what Jesus says. I know what you're going through. Get back in the word. Read it. Consider it. See what it says about me. Because Jesus was confident that if John were to do that, then he would rightly conclude that Jesus was indeed the one who was to come. And so he tells these disciples of John, tell John to dig back into the word, search the scriptures. And so John's disciples, they've left now the scene, and Jesus is still there with a group, of, with a crowd. And to that crowd, he says in verse 11, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No, nobody ever born on earth greater than that guy. What a compliment to pay someone. And we spent some time considering why John was the greatest of the prophets, as it says in another place there. And that is twofold, really. Number one, because not only did John prophesy of Jesus, but John was prophesied of himself. That verse in Malachi chapter 3, 1, that Jesus quotes in Matthew chapter eleven ten, that says, Behold, I'll send my messenger before me, before your face, who will prepare your way before you, that that speaks of John. Jesus makes it very clear that's speaking of John. That's not typically the way it works in the scripture. The prophecies weren't about people. They were about the Lord. And so here you have a guy who not only prophesied, but was prophesied of. Secondly, John is such a great prophet and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets because John was the only of the Old Testament prophets that could say, and that's the one I'm telling you about. He's right there in front of me. Look at him. And so John is the culmination, if you will, of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus words that. Look at verse 13. He says, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. There's going to be a change now in the order of things, the system of things. When, when Jesus there refers to the law and the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament. That's what we call the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. They broke up their Bible essentially into those two categories. 
today we break our Old Testament up into five categories. We have the, the books of Moses, then we have the historical books not written by Moses, then we have the poetic books like the Psalms and Proverbs, and then we have the prophecies, and we call them the major prophets and the minor prophets. But back then they just broke it up into two categories, the law and the prophets. And so Jesus here is saying for the old, all the Old Testament prophesied led up to John, and John is the culmination of that era of ministry. Last week I described it this way. If you were an Old Testament saint, you died in faith looking forward to the coming of God's Messiah. If you're a New Testament saint, you die in faith looking back to the coming of God's Messiah. But we're all looking to that central point. And John is the culmination of the era of the law and, if you will, the birth of the era of grace. Now notice what Jesus says here. It's an interesting verse. Verse 14 He says, and if you're willing to accept it, he's Elijah who is to come. And then he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, I read that, he is Elijah who is to come, and I I jotted down, what? What does that mean, that he's Elijah who is to come? So we want to unpack this, uh, because I think it's significant. Earlier, Jesus quoted Malachi chapter 3.1. I'll tell you again. That says, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Now, here in the New Testament, Jesus makes it clear that's John. John is that messenger. In the mind of the Old Testament Jew from years ago and in the times of Jesus' day, they look to another prophecy in Malachi that names a person. And so I want to draw your attention to that. This is Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. So, you know, imagine about a chapter later. It says this, Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now the Jew knew what that verse meant. Before the day and awesome day of the Lord, that's the coming of the Messiah. Okay, so they knew that. And they're saying Elijah's going to come. It says he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So you have these two verses, both talking about the Messiah, one saying that he's going to be the messenger to come before, and one naming the guy who's going to come, and that's Elijah. And so in the mind of the first century Jew, the prophecy of Matthew, excuse me, Malachi chapter 3, 1, is speaking of Elijah as well. And so there was this expectation that Elijah was going to come. This is why in John chapter 1, they asked John the Baptist, and they say, well, who are you then? Are you the Christ? And he said, I'm not the Christ. Are you, are you Elijah then? No, I'm not Elijah. Well, then are you the prophet who is to come? Which is actually another way of saying, are you the Christ? And John's like, I don't know any of those things. Here's what I know. I'm the voice of one that's crying in the will. I'm going to tell you the truth, that there's a coming Messiah. So here's the question now for us. Does Malachi chapter 4 speak of the same coming as Malachi chapter 3? Are they talking about the same thing? Or is one talking about the first coming of the Messiah and one talking about the second, or speaking about the second. They say, I don't know what you're talking about, let alone what they're talking about. Let me remind you of something we looked at last week. Last week we pointed out that there were two distinct comings of the Messiah, and they would be very different from one another. That the first coming of the Messiah is when he would come to deal with man's sin, and to do so he would bear the judgment of man's sin upon himself. That's the first coming. The second coming of the Messiah was to deal with the consequences of sin here on the earth, if you will. As the new heaven, new Jerusalem is going to send here to the earth, there's some things that have to be righted, some wrongs that have to be righted, some inequities, some injustices, some of the consequences of man's sin. 
That's going to take place in the second coming. In the first coming, he bore the weight of sin. In this coming, uh, the weight of the judgment of sin. In this coming, he's going to mete out the judgment on sin. Do you see the difference? Pretty unique, pretty distinct. And so again, uh, the question is with that in mind, does the Malachi 4 prophecy speak of Elijah coming before the Messiah's first coming or his second coming? And if we go back and we look at those verses again, read the words. It says, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. At the end there, it talks about striking the land with a decree of utter destruction. Does that sound like it's describing the first coming or the second coming? It's describing the second coming. And this is the verse that people point to. Some of you may be familiar with the book of Revelation. We studied it here, but it, it's been a while ago now, probably four or five years. In Revelation chapter 11, you have the account, this is, this is the midst of the tribulation period, you have the account of two witnesses, they're prophets really, that are going to be outside of Jerusalem speaking essentially uh, words of judgment on, on the society. You better get right because judgment is coming. And you have these two witnesses. They're not named in the book of Revelation. And so for, I guess, thousands of years now, 2,000 years now, people have wondered, who are these two witnesses that will be outside of Jerusalem? Based on this verse in Malachi chapter 4, most are convinced that one of the two witnesses is going to be Elijah, that Elijah will come and he'll, he'll do what he's going to do, very much the same ministry he did in his first coming. Now, we hear that and we think, wait a minute, first coming, second coming of a man named Elijah? I thought the Bible said that it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Didn't you think the Bible said that too? Yeah, that's what the Bible says, that it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So what's this deal about Elijah coming a second time? Well, let me ask this question. And some of you may know the answer. Some of you may not. You can call it out if you want to. You don't have to. But how did Elijah die? What were the circumstances of Elijah's funeral? You probably read about it, right? He didn't die. Elijah never died. Unusual, certainly. And we don't have a lot of examples of things like that in the Scripture. But in 2 Kings chapter 2, we have this account. You have the man Elijah and he's got a protege, and I really wish his name was like Bob, but his name is Elisha, very close to Elijah, and we always mix them up and, and so on. And these two are walking along together. They're going about life together. Um, Elisha had been warned, you know, something's going to happen with your prophet, your, your master today is, I know, I know, I know. And, and they're walking along, and all of a sudden we read this. It's in Second uh, Kings. It says, well, I've got to give you a little uh, more. Um, As they're walking along, all of a sudden chariots of fire and horses of fire separate the two men, smoke, and there's a whirlwind, and Elijah is taken up in the whirlwind. And so verse 12 says, And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha saw Elijah no more. So yes, the norm is for a person to die and then face judgment. But as we see in the example in this story that I'm sharing with you, Elijah himself never died. Now, this is part of this idea of, well, that's how he can be the second witness or, or one of the two witnesses. It's part of the reason, the fact that he never died, and I know this is an aside, but it's kind of fun. We're having a good time together. Uh, it's part of this that there's one other guy in the Bible that never died as well, and that's a, another prophet, Genesis chapter 5. His name is Enoch. Very similar in ministry to Elijah where he spoke of a coming judgment and so on. Enoch spoke of the coming judgment of the flood, um, which takes place just a chapter or so after. And in, Enoch, or excuse me, in Genesis chapter 5, it lists um, this genealogy from Adam down to Noah. And in there it said Adam lived, you know, 
100 years, then he had a kid, and he lived another 800 years, and Adam died 900. And it, it just sort of goes through that. Those numbers aren't exact. But it, it kind of goes through that. And then it comes to this guy Enoch. And in Genesis chapter 5, it says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. God just took him. I, I think that's good. You know, I mean, I, 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 I'm sure he was like, fantastic, much better. You know, I'm sure his family was like, where's dad? You know, where did he go or whatever? And they were probably a little upset about the process. Um, but Enoch was taken. And so some suggest Enoch never died. Elijah never died. Elijah's the one witness. Enoch's the, the second witness. Others suggest that it's Moses. And that could make sense perhaps here because sort of the message of these two guys is that all of the law and the prophets, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, all of those speak of this coming judgment, these last days, and so on. But we do know Moses died. And if it's appointed a man who wants to die and then the judgment, well, how can it be a guy like Moses? People refer to or they reference a verse in Jude chapter, or chapter 1, there's only one chapter in Jude, verse 24 in Jude, and it's not even talking about this issue, but it says something that maybe gives us some insight. It says, now when ar- the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blast. So the, the point is something completely different, but it mentions this idea of Michael the archangel disputing over the body of uh, Moses with Satan. That's unusual peculiar that's not something that typically happens every day it's probably not going to happen over your body and so perhaps that opens the door that Moses could come back in some form as that we we have the example in the gospels of the transfiguration where Jesus takes a few disciples up onto the mountain and there Moses and Elijah appear and Jesus does like his superman thing and reveals his glory a little bit you know so Maybe that's an indication that we're talking about Moses. So we don't really know, but we are pretty convinced that Elijah is one of those two prophets. So all of that to say that Elijah will appear before the second coming of Christ to, as it says in the Malachi verse, turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. It's sort of an idiomatic way of saying return them to the faith. And so Elijah will appear and he'll be involved in that process. Jesus says, if you are willing to accept it, Pastor Chuck Smith would say, I'm not willing to accept it. I don't think Elijah came in the form of John. Really, the better way perhaps of describing it is that John ministered in the the way of Elijah. And so Jesus' point there is the people, I'm spitting all over the place here. I'm glad you guys are sitting back a little. Um, Let me have a sip of water here. Say, my goodness, that guy. Tell your friend that. Okay, you don't have to tell him. All right. Anyway, Jesus is not saying John is Elijah. Elijah is Elijah. John is John. John is not some reincarnated form of Elijah or something like that, but he came and he ministered in the means. It's as if Jesus is saying, you're expecting that Elijah is going to come as a forerunner to tell of the Messiah. Well, even if that is the case, the point is not to draw attention to Elijah. It's to draw attention to the Messiah. And that's what John is doing. And so he's saying, you know, if you're willing to accept it, okay, great. John is Elijah, and he's coming to talk about me, so let's talk about me. Let's talk about the role that I've come to fulfill as the Messiah. Again, John and Elijah are not the same person. Now notice Jesus says in verse 15, he who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Now that's an oft-repeated phrase in the Gospels. We see a similar form of that phrase in the book of Revelation. There it says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. But again, it's a very similar phrase. The point of the phrase is to point out the importance of the statement that I either just made or that I'm about to make. And so we might say something, all right, now everybody listen up and listen well to what I'm about to tell you. We might say something like that. Jesus says it there, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Certainly, everyone that was in Jesus' presence, unless they had a physical problem of some sorts, everyone that was in his presence could hear what he said. They could hear his words, but that didn't mean just because they could physically hear that they were spiritually hearing what it was he was saying. And when he talks about having ears to hear, he's talking about taking his words and applying them to their heart. And I think it's a very good prayer for us to pray a prayer like this over our lives regularly. As a matter of fact, I think every time you come to a Bible study and you sit under the word or every time you get in your car and you turn on a Bible study or every time that you sit and have your quiet time and you open your Bible, that you should say a prayer during that time. Lord, give me eyes to see. Give me ears to hear because it's a spiritual process. We could just read these words and, you know, just not not too far down the road, Princeton uh, Seminary. Some of the world's foremost scholars on aspects of the scriptures, and yet their heart hasn't been open in relationship with the Lord. And so every time you come before the word, know it's a spiritual thing. You know, sometimes if you've been reading the Bible a lot, if you've uh, gone through a lot of Bible studies and you have notes in your Bibles or whatever, sometimes the, the cutting nature of the word kind of loses itself. Because you're just constantly, oh, yeah, I know what that means. I remember so-and-so taught on that. That was good. Oh, look at that. No, Oh, yeah, Dr. So-and-so. It's a good point. And we kind of lose what, what the Lord wants to say in our lives for today. And so I would encourage you, every time you come to the Word, ask the Lord to open up your eyes and ears to hear and see what it is he's speaking to you. And, and believe me, I, I believe the Lord, I, I, I totally believe that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It speaks into our lives on a daily basis. It's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. It's a spiritual book. And if you open your heart to receive from the Lord, He will teach you. And you'll just be amazed by the things you're growing and learning. So bring, bring that prayer to the Lord, and he'll, he'll minister to your heart. Now we continue. Look at verse 16. It says, But what shall I sh- compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge for you. That's like a sad song, funeral song. And you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet wisdom is justified excuse me, by her deeds. This statement here, tax collectors and sinners, you know what's interesting about that? That was meant to be a dig. And that is like the greatest compliment you could pay our Savior, is that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. While we were at yet at enmity with God, he sent forth his son, Jesus. And so tax collectors and sinners, not a dig at all, but uh-huh, that's exactly what I am. I'm a friend of sinners. Well, immediately following the phrase, he who has ears to l- let him hear, Jesus gives an example of some folks that don't have ears to hear. And so in verse 16, he says, it's this generation. That doesn't mean every single person there, but overwhelmingly, most people rejected what Jesus had to say. Some initially who would later believe, others never responded to it. And he said, what should I compare this generation to? He says, it's like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling out to their friends. 
And they're calling out to their friends and they're saying, hey, how come no response? We played a happy song for you and nobody got up and danced. We, so we changed it up. We played a sad song and, you know, nobody came and mourned or anything like that. You know, what, what gives? What do you want from us? Now, Jesus says better. He said, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. And the context, the idea of the statement is to make this point that the vast majority of people that gathered to listen to John or to, to Jesus or to the disciples of either of those two men, the vast majority responded in hardness of heart, that they didn't receive what it is. If you will, they said, look, we don't want happy songs, we don't want sad songs, we don't want anything from you. You know, somebody has said, you know, that those that have a heart to criticize will always find something that they can criticize. And that's exactly what is going on here. And so Jesus, he says, look, you say John has a demon because he doesn't do these things. I do the exact opposite and you call me a drunk and friends, you know, with sinners and so on. And again, people with a heart to criticize will criticize. I don't love criticism. There's some good things about it, though. We can process what people are sharing. We can say, you know, Lord, is there any, any insight there? Is there any truth there? But we can't let it debilitate us. And I think sometimes that's what happens. We let it debilitate us. I think we should learn from it, and then we kind of move forward. We move on. And sorry, Lord, you know, if there's any truth here, use it in my life. But Jesus, he just keeps doing. Notice what Jesus says there, and, and this is the point. He says in the, in the end of verse 19, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Some of your versions might say it is justified by her children. The idea is offspring or fruit is the idea there. And his point is, you know what? You could do what you're going to do. Jesus could do what he was going to do, and people can reject that. This generation that's in front of him can reject it. They can call John a demon-possessed man. They can call Jesus a drunkard. But that doesn't negate the role that each of them came to fulfill. And so they're going to continue to do it. And the fruit of their ministries will bear out if they are who they said they were not the testimony of the generation that is in front of them. Does that make sense? And so wisdom is justified by her fruit. We continue on, verse 20. He, begins, he began, I should say, to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. He said, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sack, sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And he says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Well, Jesus has just called out this generation in the previous verse, and now seems like he's sort of on a roll, he begins to list by name a number of cities that were located in northern Israel, in the Galilee region. Now you may recall I mentioned that there was something like, they estimate, like 15,000 villages up around Galilee. Some very small, some a little bit bigger. Tiny little places for the most part. There were four though, we wouldn't call them cities, but there were four, four larger settlements up there in the Galilee region, which were quite sizable. Um, they were Capernaum, 
Chorazin, Bethsaida, and another city not listed here that's called Tiberias. All right, so these were a little bit more larger cities. Jesus, as you know, he was from the Galilee region. We read in our Bible a number of accounts of Jesus in Jerusalem, and it's almost like 50-50 in the Gospels. But the reality is the amount of time Jesus spent in the Galilee region far surpassed the amount of time that he spent down in Jerusalem. He may have spent two, three weeks a year in Jerusalem and the other 40-some weeks up in Galilee. So the vast majority of the time he's up in the Galilee region and he's ministering in the Galilee region. You know Jesus was born and raised in Nazareth, which is part of the Galilee region. He relocated and set up in Capernaum, which is northern Galilee. And so the vast majority of his time, his teaching, the miracles that he was doing, all of these things that sort of build his name up and people's awareness of him in that particular place was taking place in Galilee. And so Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin, there in verse 21. He says also in verse 21, and woe to you, Bethsaida. And then finally in verse 23, woe to you and also you, Capernaum. Three cities, lots of ministry taking place there. But despite the time that he spent there in those cities, despite all of the miracles and works that he did in those cities, they refused to accept and believe. And Jesus pronounces a woe on them. These folks had physical eyes and ears. They heard what Jesus taught. They saw what Jesus was doing and yet they refuse to open their spiritual eyes and ears to perceive. And Jesus calls them out for it. He says to them, essentially, you've squandered the privilege that was uniquely given and granted to each of you by pointing out a number of different cities' names. He, he does so by saying he goes to some older cities in history that also were judged. talks about Tyre and Sidon. A little bit later, he talks about Sodom. Tyre and Sidon, today they would be located in what is called Lebanon. Lebanon is just to the north of Israel. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean. They were two of the great cities of ancient history. They're talked about in the scriptures in the Old Testament. Tyre, though it was this great city, was ultimately destroyed by the Babylonians. So somewhere around the 500s B.C. Uh, Sidon was destroyed by the Greeks under the leadership of Alexander the Great. So you're coming a little bit closer to the time of Jesus. And these two great cities experienced judgment. And the prophecies were that they would. And Jesus says, you know, if Tyre and Sidon had the privilege of what you have, Chorazin, you have Bethsaida, Tyre and Sidon would have repented long ago. He gives it the other example there of Sodom in verse 23. You know from Genesis chapter 19 that it was the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that received the judgment and they were judged for their sin. But Jesus says, you know what, if Sodom and Gomorrah had what you guys have, the privilege you have, they would have repented long ago. It's interesting to point this out, I think. As I said, there were about four major cities. There were four key cities up there in that region. All the rest were kind of small villages. For instance, you wouldn't know anything about Nazareth if Jesus wasn't born or raised there in Nazareth. You probably wouldn't know anything about it. But these other cities, you might, historically. You might know about Capernaum. You might know about um, the others that are listed there uh, as well. The interesting thing is, today for Capernaum, Capernaum doesn't exist as a city or a town today. You can go there on part of your tours, and all that is there today, there's a church which was built on top of the ruins of where they believe Peter's mother-in-law lived. 
and it's a Catholic church, and it's a relic, and saints, and all this sort of thing. You can see a destroyed synagogue that is there, and some of the foundations of some homes, and then there's a Catholic convent. And that's all that exists of this once great city. Archaeologists have no idea. They know it existed because it's in writings. They have no idea where Bethsaida was. They have no idea where uh, Chorazin was. They, they just don't know. Those cities have completely been destroyed over uh, the last 2,000 years. Three of those four cities that were once great cities during the time of Christ. You know, Tiberias, you know what that is today? It's a great city. It's a beautiful little city in northern Galilee. It's where we stay when we go on our Israel trip. It's sort of like a Princeton. You can kind of walk around and shop and go down to the edge of the, the water there and there's shops and all that kind of stuff. It's great. Don't you find it interesting that of the four great cities, the only one to exist is the only one not having a woe pronounced on it in this particular passage? I, I just don't think it's a coincidence. It just seems to me to be indicative here of what's going on. But, but notice this, Jesus says in verse 22, in speaking about Tyre and Sidon, he says it will be, well, not speaking about them, but referencing them, he says, I'll tell you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for those two cities. In verse 24, he says, I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom. Notice those words, bearable and tolerable. It seems that this passage is teaching that there are degrees of judgment as far as hell is concerned in particular. And it seems this, this is the principle from Scripture, that the greater the light means the greater the responsibility. And again, it's not stated directly, but it sure seems to be implying that there are different degrees of judgment based on the amount of light a person is exposed to. And that's why he uses words like more bearable and more tolerable. All will still receive judgment if they don't receive Christ. But the one that has the greater opportunity will experience a greater measure of judgment. There's a parable that's told in Luke chapter 12. And in the summation of that parable that Jesus gives, he says this. Now the servant that knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. Still receive judgment, but notice the degree. He says, everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Again, the point is that the greater the light, the greater the responsibility. And so for these cities here in the Galilee region, despite the tremendous privilege that had been granted to them, despite all the miracles that Jesus performed in their midst, and despite all of the teaching opportunities that Jesus had to have had in those cities, they hardened their hearts and they refused to believe. And that's really important to note. They hardened their heart and they refused to believe. Note this, though. They didn't take rocks and chase Jesus out of their cities. Not, not Bethsaida, not Chorazin. We don't have any record of that. They didn't crucify Jesus. They didn't, you know, attack him in some way. They simply were indifferent to him. And that's significant. Because the vast majority of people in the United States and around the world, Jesus is a nice guy. Yeah, good guy. But they're indifferent to him. His words, his deeds, his actions don't mean anything to them. And they think, you know, I'm just indifferent. Steady Freddy, right down the middle. I'm not going to say anything bad, not necessarily jump on board. I'm just going to kind of go about my life. And it's that indifference, that simple disregard of him, which will bring this judgment upon them. Now, a lesson for us. I think a lesson for us is that we should be very careful 
how we deal with the privileges that we've been, been granted as followers of Christ, as Western Christians, and the privileges that we have as a result of being a believer in a relatively safe place where there's an influence of the, the Word of God here on our society and so on. Let me give you some examples of this. How many of us have multiple Bibles scattered all around our house? You know, you have one. I didn't mean for a question, but thank you. You know, but you have one Bible sitting on this end table, another one up by the bathroom, another one in the kitchen, another one over there in the dining room, whatever. We have Bibles everywhere. And yet how often do we go a full day never having even opened one of those Bibles? You ever see some of these pictures on videos on Facebook when uh, somebody comes and delivers Bibles to some village, you know, around the world? You know, and these people have gathered in this room and they open up the suitcase and it's like Black Friday at Walmart. You know, people are diving in and everyone's grabbing Bibles or whatever. You know, you hear stories of uh, ministries that are trying to get Bibles into the hands of people that don't have Bibles. I I so very much appreciate the ministry of some of the Bible translating organizations that are out there. And, you know, people that go and live in these villages and learn the language and they're able to codify the word of God and get it out to the people there. But, you know, you have a village of whatever, 500 people, and maybe there's like 10 Bibles there. And they start, you know, dividing up the Bibles. Here, you take John, you know what I mean? And I'll take this one. So because if you're only reading John, there's 65 other books that aren't being touched that morning or whatever. I could be reading that with my family, and they, they start ripping the Bible into parts and, you know, passing that around or whatever. I, you hear of prisoners in the United States that don't have Bibles that do that. And there's just, just high regard for the Word of God. And, you know, here I think some of us, we have Bibles scattered all throughout our house, and we don't even get into it. We've been granted a great privilege. We don't want to squander that privilege. I think of the young people in our church that have grown up with the gospel and how privileged you are for being able to do so. You know, I grew up in a home and we never opened the Bible. We weren't against it. We were just, I guess, indifferent to it. That's what the priest did. The priest opened the Bible. You'll find out about it on Sunday or whatever it may be. You know, and we have young people here that have grown up and just about every Sunday of their life, They've had the opportunity to sit under the word. Young people, look at me, I'm talking to you. I'm just teasing. You know, but young people, don't squander the opportunity. You have an opportunity to be built up in the faith, to be saved from a lot of the junk that a lot of us had to get into and heal from. You know the word of God, and you can go and you can bring that to your friends and around the world, really. And again, the verse, to whom much is given of him, much will be required. You know, let those words cut a little bit in your heart. Now let's move on to verse 25. It says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. You revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so still in the presence of these people, Jesus sort of, he directs a prayer to his father. It, it seems to be a, another indication of Jesus was just in constant communion with his father, sometimes audibly, most of the time probably not audibly. And yet here, in that communication with his father, it just sort of comes out, Father, I am so grateful. 
I just thank you, Father, he says, Lord of heaven and earth. You revealed these things. You kept them from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for to such, such was your gracious will. Just spontaneously breaking into a period of rejoicing over this fact that knowledge of him isn't reserved for the wise and the understanding, but it can be understood by the most simplest. It could be understood by the most simplest. The well-educated, the religious leader, who could probably quote all of the Old Testament messianic prophecies, nonetheless missed the significance of the Old Testament prophecies. It seems Jesus' ministry, it just didn't fit into their narrative of how the story should go. And so their expectation was Jesus should change his ministry, not they should change their understanding of what his ministry would look like. They were the wise and understanding, and they refused to believe. They refused to have ears to hear spiritually. One group that didn't refuse to believe or was perfectly willing to accept what Jesus was presenting was the group that he refers to as little children. Little children, not the cream of religious crop of society, if you will. Many would look at these folks, you know, we're not talking about kids, we're talking about adults, but he calls them little children. Many would look at these, you know, you look around the congregation, and they would say, yeah, that, that guy is a nominal Christian. You know, he kind of comes, does what he got to do, but he's not a leader or something important like we are or whatever. They would just see these guys as average folks. These are the folks, these little children, that, you know, if they're in a congregation, they'd be content to sit back and say, you know what, who am I? Let the professionals do what they're supposed to do. Just regular people, but people that were willing to receive what Jesus brought. Jesus calls them little children. Again, he's speaking of more than little children. King James Version uses the word babes. He says, uh, revealed them to babes. And the point is one that comes in humility, ready to learn. The wise, the understanding, they weren't prepared to receive anything from this backcountry carpenter from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Bunch of hicks out there. And anytime something that was, was presented that didn't jive with what they expected, again, they expected Jesus would change that. Uh, again, it doesn't work that way. Now, the little child or even the baby or, you know, a couple months old or whatever is the baby starting to grow and able to interact or whatever, they're completely open to receive. Now, you think about it. If you were, like, mean or, and some of you are like, no, I can, I am, you know, but if you were, like, mean or you were a practical jokester, you could pretty much get a kid, if he or she trusted you, to do anything. Right? You know, you, you just kind of tell them a story or whatever. Yesterday I was with Will Lynch's kids, and I was about to leave the house. I was going to a hockey game. And I said, we're going to the game. Get ready. And she said, we're going? I said, yes, get in the car. And she wasn't coming. And she was like, I want to go. And I'm like, I was kidding or whatever. But she believed me because I told her she was coming with me. And, you know, I, I know, it's horrible. It's terrible. <laughs> My wife said to me, don't you remember kids are literal or whatever? And I'm like, yeah, I forgot or whatever. So, anyway, I gave her a lollipop, all was well. <laughs> but kids come with their questions, you know, the whole, like, why, why? They come with their question, and if they trust you, they're pretty much open to whatever it is you have to say. And the general rule, well, mom and dad said it, and so I believe it. Now, in the ways of the world, maybe such an attitude would seem naive for an adult, you know, just be open to whatever people are telling them. 
But as far as our interactions with the Lord, it's the attitude, it's the exact attitude that we need to have, open and ready to receive. Lord, what do you want to teach me? How do you want to change me? How do you want to metamorphosize me into your image? What do you want to do? I know it's not a word, Josiah. All right, he looked up. <laughs> he looked up, he's like, that ain't English, man. You know, I don't know what it is, but it ain't English. Now, the second key point is this. So having hearts that are open to receive. Second key point is in verse 26. Notice there, it says, he hid them from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. That word revealed, it's a term which means to remove the covering or to lay open what was previously veiled, to uncover it, to reveal it. And that's a spiritual work. That's a spiritual work that God does and has done in the heart of each person that believes. God opens up our hearts. So if you're a believer here, you're not a believer here because you're smarter than other people. And, you know, I figured this thing out, and it's just too bad. You're dunce. You know, you just can't figure these things out like I did. That's not why you're a believer. It's not, you're not a believer because you have some superior spiritual morality which allowed you to be a believer, or anything that has to do with you, really. It's that God opened up your heart to believe, and he's revealed the reality that it's through his son that your sins, though they're many, can be washed and clean or cleansed. You or I or anyone that has come to trust Christ, we've done so for no other reason than that the Lord has opened up our hearts. And so may I suggest, if you've been trying to share with somebody the faith, and they just can't get it through their thick skull. Have you ever said that? And you look at the eyes and see who said things like that. I, can, I see you. I see you too. You know, but if you've ever said something like that, they just can't get it through their thick skull. Well, it's not their thick skull that it has to get into. It's in their thick heart. And it's not going to come by your pressure. It's not going to come by you beating it into them or getting some big shoehorn or something and fitting in. It's going to come when the Lord opens up their heart. And so keep sharing with them, keep telling them the truth, keep passing good materials and, and things like that. But ultimately, keep praying that God would reveal to him, them, himself, and that he would open up their heart to believe. Make that a prayer. Now, for your life, maybe there's just something you're not getting. You know, you're, you're wrestling with a spiritual truth or something like that. It doesn't just come by your intellect. It doesn't come by your intellect. Now, I think you should dig into a book and try to do that, but I think you should do that prayerfully and that you should start, if you will, with this prayer. Lord, open up my heart to understand. Reveal your will to me in that area as well. Every time you sit under the word of God, every time you sit to understand who the Lord is, it should be a matter of prayer for you. Like we said earlier, Lord, give me eyes to see, ears to hear. Lord, open up my heart. Reveal what it is what you want me to learn. You know, we have a story in the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 4. And it's an interesting encounter. Two men, the disciples of Jesus, Peter and John, who we know were fishermen by trade. I've mentioned to you, maybe forgotten, but fishermen were pretty much barely educated individuals. They went as far as they needed to go in school, and then they got out and started earning money for the family. And so Peter and John are these two guys, and they're standing before the most well-educated people of the day. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes who were uh, the experts in the law. And not only just one, you know, if you're in front of one guy, you can kind of have a conversation. They're standing in front of the entire council of these people and all of the others that hope to be a member of that council someday. And Peter and John, these sort of uneducated, regular folks, there gave a testimony of who Jesus is before this council. And we read these words. This is sort of the summation of it. It says, now when they saw the boldness, they being the, the Pharisees and others, 
saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that these men were uneducated common men. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You see, that's what really stood out. Now, I'm not saying don't get an education. I'm not saying don't study to show yourself approved and those sorts of things. But please don't rely on those things. You need to spend time with Jesus in his word. You spend time with the Lord in his word. You spend time in prayer. Spend time in fellowship with other believers that are spending time in his word and spending, in ti- spending time in prayer. And God will increasingly begin to reveal his will and his wisdom into your life. And suddenly you'll begin to speak things out and say things into people's lives and say, well, you know what? Here's an idea for you. I, I, was, I was talking with a guy, and um, it was on the side of a soccer field. I think I told you this story. And he was our athletic trainer, and I was the coach. And, you know, my players are out there running around, and we want to win and all this stuff, and I'm a little focused here. And he comes up alongside me and says, can I ask you a question? And I'm thinking, like, you know, how so-and-so's ankle, you know, are they okay to play or whatever? And he says, what do you think about this Bible passage or whatever? And I'm like, really? I want to tell you how much I think about it, but not now, not right now or whatever. And so I, I gave him sort of this principle that I had learned in the Scripture. And he said, that's really that's really deep, man. That's good. Sound like a hippie. You know, that, that, that's really good, man. And I said, well, I didn't make it up. You know, Jesus said it. I don't know where, but I'll, I'll find out and I'll let you know. Whatever. But wisdom that we have that God reveals to us as we spend time with him is the point that I'm trying to make here. So spend time with the Lord. Get into his word. Do it prayerfully. And you'll be astonished. People will be astonished at what God is doing in your life and the testimony that you have. Amen. Do you agree to that? Hopefully. Now look at verse 27. He says, all these things have been handed over to me by my father. Nobody knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. We spoke about that. Then he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well-known verses, verses 28 and 29, classic verses starting with, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You think of how many Christians throughout the centuries have been comforted by those words to just come to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm tired, and I just need to rest. Now, the context of the verse has to do with relationship with God. And relationship with God begins for the believer at the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's the context such a concept of lay your, your burden down, I'll take it up, my yoke is easy, and so on. Such a concept is the complete opposite of ev- every other religious system as far as how one begins a relationship with God. Every religious system that is out there acknowledges that we are sinners and we got a problem. And every religious system that is out there, from the ancient ones to the more contemporary ones, how do you deal with that guilt problem? How do you cause it to go away? Some would word it this way. How do you appease an angry God? And in every single other religious system, burden upon burden upon burden is piled onto the person. Burden upon burden upon burden. And you take enough of those burdens on you, and eventually the guilt can be removed and God, the God can be appeased. And so, depend, whatever one is out there, do these good works. Do these good deeds. Say these ten prayers. Give this amount of money. Live this perfect life. Crawl on your bloodied knees to this point and bow before this statue. 
Whip yourself as a sign of your repentance. Bring your sacrifice offering. And you can go on forever and ever and ever. And sacrifice your own son. You know, you can go on again and again and again as to the burdens that people had to take on themselves. And the sad thing about it is this, that after the person has done all those things and they go to their religious leader and they say, is now my God, is now our God appeased with me? The response of the religious leader will be something to this effect. Well, I, I, I don't actually know. I guess we'll see. Just keep doing what you're doing and we will hope that he or she is appeased. And I have to tell you, that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is confident expectation. And so for any one of us in this room, when we come to the end of our days, I don't remember if I shared in this story or not, but as Christians, we look forward, if you will, to going to heaven but that doesn't mean we're sadist or whatever, and we're like, kill me now, or something like that. You know, but typically, did I say this in this group? I didn't say it in this group. Typically, when a Christian is fearful about dying, it's not because of what's on the other side. It's because of, you know, what's going to happen to my wife and my kids, and how are other people going to respond, and that I, you know, set them up financially, you know, for the future. That's really the, the apprehension that the Christian faces death. But the Christian has hope on the uh, confident expectation. I'll give you a dumb example. A few years back, I was watching a replay of the Phillies 2008 World Championship game when they won the World Series. And if you're a Phillies fan, you have to watch replays of glory days because there are none now. <laughs> um, although I heard they beat the Mets last night. Praise the Lord, or whatever. Uh, I'm not sure if that's praise the Lord, but whatever. So I'm watching a replay of this World Championship game this, uh, when they won the World Series. And I have to tell you, there's a big difference between watching it live and when I watched it live in 2008 and seeing it replayed some many years later. Because watching it live, you have anything but confident expectation. If you're a Phillies fan, you've learned confident expectation of victory is not something you possess because something's always going to go wrong or could possibly go wrong. But watching it replayed knowing what the outcome is going to be, you just watch it with peace. You call all your friends, come watch this, watch this. Going to throw them a slider and strike them out and Tug McGraw, you know, it's going to be great. You don't know who Tug McGraw is, you old people, or young people perhaps, but he was good in his day. Anyway, here's my point. It is God's design that each of us has peace in our relationship with him. That's God's design, that we have peace in our relationship with him. Not that we be burdened, not that we be heavy laden, which is what the religious leaders of Jesus' day were convinced God expected of humanity. You want to go to heaven? All right, well then get ready for the difficulty. Get ready for the heaviness. Here's the burden. You know, make sure you work out beforehand because it's not going to be easy. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, as many religious leaders in our day, they were burdening people by having them shoulder these burdens, convinced that that was all that could appease an angry God. And Jesus calls them out for it. He does so here, basically. But in Matthew chapter 23, he specifically does. We'll look at that when we get to it. But it's there. Jesus is addressing a crowd, and he uses the opportunity to call out the religious leaders. And he says this. He says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. That's religion. Heavy burdens, difficult for people to bear, that they lay on people's shoulders. And religion is man's attempt to relink 
with God through some sort of burden bearing on their own. That's religion. Christianity is relationship. It's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And our relationship with him should be anything but a burden. He bore the burden on the cross. And ours is to rest in the good work that he has accomplished. Amen? You agree with that? And that's a truth that we rejoice in, isn't it? Now, in a group of this size, some of us may have never done that. We may have approached faith, religion, uh, appeasing God. We look at our lives, our past lives, and, you know, we're thinking, man, I really should get my act together. And people do this with insincerity. They say, you know what, maybe I should start serving, you know, helping the poor or something like that. I really should pay God back or something for what he's done for me or, or things like that. And we begin to lay these burdens on ourselves when the reality is this. We need to first come to the end of ourselves. We need to come to that place where we say, you know what? My sin has separated me from a holy God. And Lord, God, if you're out there, I exchange the gift. The gift of your son for my sin. I place my trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And any one of us that's here or outside listening on the tape, whatever it may be, you do that in the sincerity of your heart. And the scripture promises that your sins will be washed away and cleansed. And you will be in right relationship with God. Now, I suspect, though, since we're a church, most of us are probably believers, and we've done that. We've come to the place where we acknowledged our sin, repented of our sin, and accepted the gift of salvation. So can I ask you this question? Are you at rest in your walk with him? Or is your Christian faith one of burden? One where it's, oh, I got to read the Bible. Oh, I got to go to church. Oh, I can't curse. Or I can't say mean things or do mean thing, bad things because I'm a Christian. And it's just a burden for you. And you wonder, am I ever going to get to heaven with this behavior that I have, this attitude that I have? Or you say, is it ever going to get easier? Or is it ever going to be peaceful? Is it ever going to be something I'm glad I made the decision to do? The answer is it should be. Our Christian faith should not be burdensome to us. I'm not saying it's not hard work and challenging. Believe me, it's a burden when you set the alarm for a particular time and it rings and you get up and you go into the other room and you think, once I would just like to sleep in instead of getting up and doing this. But in my case, once becomes, you know, every day or whatever. And so that's burdensome. That's challenging. Sure, it's burdensome to come and to, to set up chairs or whatever. Yeah. I'd rather be home, whatever, with my kids or whatever. But we do things like that. So I'm not implying that it's not challenging and difficult. But if the burden on your heart is weighing you down such that there's no peace in your relationship with God, then you're doing it wrong, and you're missing it. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. We're going to talk more next week about what that exactly means, but I ask this question of believers. Are you at rest? Are you striving to maintain God's approval? Have you forgotten that you did nothing to attain God's approval, and thus you can do nothing to maintain God's approval. And so this morning, may I just leave you with this. Leave your burdens here. Don't take them with you. Leave them here. Rest in your relationship with God. He has accomplished the work through his son, Jesus Christ. He has filled you with his spirit. He's enabled you to accomplish that which he wants you to accomplish. Rest in that reality. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that truth. And Lord, you can do a surgical work on our hearts much better than any words that I could share. And so, Father, I ask that you would do that. 
Lord, I pray that these words and the power of these words, Lord, the impact, the significance of these words, Lord, would touch each one of us in the deep places. Lord, if we have been failing to rest in Christ, Lord, you would reveal to us both how and then sort of what the response to that is. What, how do you want us to move from here? Lord, that you would grant us, even as we step out of here, Lord, just the great joy of our salvation. Lord, I pray like uh, those athletes that train with weights around their ankles or whatever, and they're sort of weighted down by that, slowed down by that, Lord, that every one of us this morning, Lord, that those weights would be loosed and we would just sort of fly out of this room in a sense, Lord, uh, just moving so fast because that which entangled us was removed. So, Lord, do just a heavenly work within our hearts right now. We bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.